0: Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to uh, James chapter one again, and we're going to continue where we left off this morning. We did chapter uh, chapter one verses one through four this morning, and we'll do chapter one verses five through eight today, looking at what the Bible says and what James says in particular particular about asking for wisdom and the double-minded man. And I think some of you have caught on by now that uh, I welcome interaction and I welcome participation, and uh, even more so. So if at any point you have a question or if you have something you want to add to this by all means feel free to speak up I, I don't i don't really want to stand up here and just talk at you i'd rather have a good dialogue with you about some of the about the issues that we see here and i'll try to keep us moving along and try to keep this down to under an hour i was told i was way long this morning an hour and 10 minutes so no <laughs> so, uh and then uh just one other comment before i get going i'll I've always enjoyed doing Sunday afternoons up here because it sure fights off the the tendency to go to sleep when you're up here in front of everybody. Uh, Otherwise, after lunch like that, I would be a a threat to fall asleep every once in a while. But anyway, James chapter 1, we're looking at verses 5 through 8, but as I told you this morning, the context is very important, and the context that I see verses 5 through 8 occur within are verses 1 through 18. I'm never ashamed about reading long passages from the Word of God because... Uh, What I have to say is really of no importance when it comes to being being compared to what God says. So let's read verses 1 through 18, and then we'll we'll look at verses 5 through 8 in detail. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because of the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof faileth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him." That no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. That Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Now, to begin with today, what I'd like you to do is I want you to hold your place there in James, but I want to turn for a minute to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, and I'm going to read verses 20 to 22. Matthew chapter 13, verses 20 to 22, and this is an excerpt from the parable of the sower, specifically where Jesus describes the parable of the sower. And the excerpt that I want to look at describes two of the grounds. It describes the stony ground, or the rocky ground in some of your versions, and the thorny ground. And I'm going to use this particular portion of this parable to illustrate what it means to ask for wisdom and for being a double-minded man. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, verses 20 to 22. But he that received the seed into stony places... The same is he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it. Yet he hath he not root in himself, but endureth for a while, or endureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. He also that receiveth seed among the thorns, is he that heareth the word, and the care of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. And so if we remember the parable of the sower right, there are four types of ground that are characterized in the parable of the sower. There's the seed that was sown along the path, and immediately Satan snatches what is uh, thrown there and carries it away. That was the first one. Then we have the two here, the stony ground and then the thorny ground. The fourth ground that we won't consider today either is the fruitful ground, the ground that the seed is sown in and it produced a good crop. We're going to consider today these middle two grounds. The stony ground here that I see as it relates to James chapter 1 is the person that appears to be a Christian, but whose faith wavers, and then they fall away in the midst of trials. So trials come this person's way, and their faith is proved not to be genuine by the fact that they fall away. So that's one type of ground we have here. The other type of ground that we have here is the thorny ground. I believe that the thorny ground person is a person that appears to be a Christian, but whose faith wavers and then they fall away in the face of temptations. So if you remember the teaching from this morning, James chapter 1 verses, uh, chapter 1 verses 2 through 4, we talked about trials and we talked about temptations. Well, I believe here in the parable of the sower, in these middle two soils, we see this again. We see trials and we see temptations. Trials making people fall away, and temptations making people fall away today, James is going to describe for us in these verses five through eight a person with a wavering faith. Now, when we read the words in James chapter one verse eight about a double well and actually I want to back up to verse seven uh, uh, actually the end of verse I want to back up to the end of verse six. Uh, I want you to see there's a change here in the middle of verse six. You have the word for, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he will, shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. What I want to propose to you is that in the in the middle of verse 6, James shifts his attention from the believer to the unbeliever. Verses uh, 5 and the beginning part of verse 6 is directed to the believer. If any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you in here, if any of you Christian lacks wisdom, ask God and it will be given to him. How? Liberally, without upbraiding. But let him ask in faith, not wavering. Then you have the shift. For he that wavereth is like the wave of a sea, uh, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. What I'm proposing to you is that as a Christian, we have a right to come to God the Father and ask and expect to receive. It is the unbeliever that asks and does not receive. And then a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. That, once again, is describing to us primarily the non-Christian. And so you can say, well, why in the world do we want to look at this? I'm a Christian. Why do I care? I I will tell you that why we want to look at this is because as Christians... We don't want to appear and act as unchristians. It is my proposition that that's the primary theme of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is written to a group of Christians, and the writer is saying, you look like Christians, you need to act like Christians, and I have a fear that some of you are really not Christians. I think James is doing the same thing here, teaching us the way a Christian should act and should not act. So, that being said... uh Now, when you don't look at these verses in the full context, what you think you see here is in the middle of discussion about facing trials and temptations, James interjects these verses about asking for God's wisdom. And often these verses are taken out of context, saying, look, any wisdom, any type, any time, all you got to do is ask God. Well, that may or may not be true, but it is out of context. The context that we have here, James talks about wisdom in the midst of facing trials and temptations. That's not saying that God doesn't give give us wisdom in other areas, but the context of these verses is wisdom and how we go about facing trials and temptations. Um, Now, someone pick a trial at random. Anybody going through a trial? Someone pick a trial for us at random. Poor health, poor health. Okay, very good. Uh, Now, suppose we use the world's wisdom to face this trial. Poor health. What would be some of our possible reactions? Fear, okay, that fear is one. And we could take an example of poor health, such as a diagnosis of cancer. We could be very specific. We could be fearful. We could have depression. We could be have depression. Uh, a, a word that we could also use there would be hopelessness. Over reliance on natural means does that mean we go the does that mean we don't go to the doctor? No, but it doesn't mean we have full and final faith in the doctors either. Does that mean we don't go seek a second opinion? No, I, I, believe, I believe fully in doctors. I think my doctors probably kept me alive for the last few years. So, uh, but it doesn't mean we have full reliance upon doctors. What are other reactions? Anger. Anger is a very good one. Thank you. Self-pity. Y'all, y'all, are, y'all are right on track on this. But now suppose we have God's wisdom. How might our reaction be different if we have God's wisdom? We have hope. Uh, I used the word hopeless before. We have hope. See, this ought to be easy. You just turn around everything we said and put the positive on it. Peace. Peace is a good word. What else? We have hope. We can have peace. We can have joy. You you were listening this morning, weren't you? In the midst of a trial, we learn that we need to have joy. Absolutely. Uh, You see, without having God's wisdom, we cannot have God's perspective. Without having God's wisdom, we cannot have God's perspective. We must understand verses 5 through 8 here in context of verses 1 through 4. James is specifically talking about asking for God's wisdom and in, in what we are to learn through suffering trials and enduring temptations. That is the context that we have here. Let's begin with verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given to him. Now, first of all, what is the condition of the person? James is addressing a particular person here. What is their condition? Look at the first phrase of verse 5, and tell me what is the condition of the person that James is addressing. Yeah, Someone prior to receiving the Lord's wisdom, specifically it says, if you lack wisdom. So James is talking to a person here that lacks wisdom. Now, remember the context, lacks wisdom in facing that trials and temptations. That is the context here. If any of you lacks wisdom in the facing of trials and temptations, that is the condition of the person. The person James is contemplating lacks wisdom when they're facing a trial of temptation. That person is not sure about what to do. Have any of you been there facing a trial, facing a temptation, and say, You know, I could go one way, I could go the other, I'm not sure what to do. That is the person that James is contemplating as he writes these verses. Let me phrase that question a different way, not what should I do. Let me tell you how to phrase that question from a biblical perspective. What is God's way and what is the world's way? That's what James is going to address here, that question. When trials and temptations come our way, James wants you to think think this. How is the world going to face this? How does God want me to face this? That is the differentiation that we're setting up here. Now, we need a definition before we go on. What is wisdom, particularly God's wisdom? How would you define that? And I don't have i'm I'm not searching for anything particular here. I'm looking for a definition. How would you define God's wisdom? Understanding of what right and good, Brother Herman. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Very good, yeah. Right. All right. What else? Seeing things from God's perspective—that is God's wisdom. Any others? What is God's wisdom? That's that's the question before us. Wisdom from above, and it's also got some other words that, that describe it in there too. Uh, what are those words? You think? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll throw another one out there for you. What defines God's wisdom? That's the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. That is God's wisdom, and we, why do I point that out? Is I want to point out to you that God's wisdom doesn't come from inside a person naturally. It comes from the presence of God dwelling within a person. We can't expect to have God's. We can't expect a non-believer to have God's wisdom. It's just not going to happen. They may get something right every once in a while, but more than likely, the the unbeliever is going to operate using worldly wisdom. Uh, The first couple of chapters of the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, are all about that idea. And I'm not going to take the time to delve into that this morning. But that whole first two chapters of the book of Corinthians is about the folly of worldly wisdom. And also the source of godly wisdom. And I'm not going to dig into that this morning. morning. Uh, uh, Wisdom has to do with facing issues of life. Uh, That is the context here. Trials and tribulations, temptations. Are facts of life. The wisdom here is talking about how we go about facing those things. Uh, <clears throat> so we, first of all, we have the condition of the person. Second, I want you to notice the command given the person. What is the command? The person who lacks wisdom is told to do something. What is that thing? What is their, What are they told to do? They're told to ask of God. Ask God for that wisdom. When we recognize the fact that we lack wisdom in facing a trial or temptation... What do we do? We ask God uh, for that wisdom we need. Now, you say, "Well, that's great in theory." How do you go about asking God? Practically, how do you go about asking God? <laughs> okay, and so so let's throw around some religious terms. There, there. You when you ask God, you you're praying to God. Now, how would you expect God to answer? I, I propose you primarily. Through His word, sometimes through the words of others you're, you're 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 hitting the nail on the head with this: Our job is to ask God and then expect Him to answer in the ways that He normally answers our request for wisdom, primarily through the Word. Do you see that asking God for wisdom and then not spending any time in the word at all is absolute foolishness, and you see asking God for wisdom? And not spending time with other brothers and sisters in Christ, discussing real issues, is foolishness? I mean, one of, you know, one, of the, one of the things I always loved about this place is I could come in here and I didn't have to talk football. That you could come in here and discuss real issues. You could discuss theological issues or you could discuss real life issues when you came into this building. That's You don't know how important that is. Because so many of us drowned our trials and our temptations and the things we face in life. In trivialities, instead of facing life issues head-on with one another, we want to talk about football or weather or you name it, a hundred other things, other than doing what brothers and sisters in Christ are supposed to be doing. Now, third, well, first of all, we had the condition of the person. Second, we had the command given. the condition of the person lacking wisdom, the command given, asking. Third, I want you to notice is God's answer to the prayer for wisdom. There are two terms that are used here in the text to describe how God answers prayer. Somebody help me out. What are the two terms? <coughs> Excuse me. Liberally is one of them, and then the other is without, without reproach. Some of your versions say upbraiding there. Now, let's talk about those two words, liberally. Other versions use the word generously. Other versions use the word ungrudgingly here. Any of you ever been given a gift? But had it given in a grudging manner, you know, you know, a lot of times, like sometimes you get a Christmas present from someone who really didn't want to give you a Christmas present, but they just had to. So here's your Christmas present. Uh, that's grudgingly. God doesn't give wisdom that way. He gives it ungrudgingly, liberally, or generously. This word also carries another idea. It carries the word, idea of the word unconditionally. And that's important to me because how many times, especially us uh, uh, us parents, have our children ask us for something, and then you give them whatever they want, and you know, then you never if it's a you know a toy or an object, you never see it again. You know, oh, and they find out, oh, I broke it, and so forth and so on. And, and what do you say to yourself? You say, well, I'm never doing that again. I want you. To, I want to point out that God, when He gives wisdom, He gives it unconditionally, which means that you might ask for wisdom, and you might utterly blow it. I've done it before. I've asked for God's wisdom. I've had God show me what to do, and I've utterly blown it. When we see that God does unconditionally, that doesn't mean that means that I still can go back and ask again. Now, the other word without upbraiding, uh, without reproach, without chiding. Once again, I'll use the illustration of a child asking a parent for something. How often when our children ask for something, do we grant their request, but do it with reproach? Yes, but don't ask me again. Or yes, but you don't know what you're asking for. Uh, that that happens quite a bit. God, when he's asked for wisdom, gives wisdom, and he gives it without chiding or without reproach. Now, just to show you, let me quote Matthew chapter 7, verses 9-11. You'll recognize these verses. Or what man is there of you whom, if his son asks bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish will he give them a serpent if you then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children how much more shall your father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him now somebody's immediately thinking about the parallel passage because that verse ends slightly differently in the parallel passage anybody remember how it ends give the holy spirit <laughs> now so tell me you who are so quick to answer that over here why the, why the difference why is there, in obviously two parallel passages, why is there a difference between good things and the Holy Spirit? All right, I got one person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. The point that is being made there, I believe, is that the gift of the Holy Spirit is the good thing. The illustration here is from the physical to the spiritual. You understand that, about being given bread or being given a fish. That's all physical. The illustration transfers to the spiritual. And there's only, there's a there, there's one spiritual gift that the Father gives that surpasses all spiritual gifts. That is the gift of the Holy Spirit. It does. Right. Because once again, we quoted it this morning, but again, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Actually, we didn't finish, did we? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. It is... The sum total of good gifts. So that's why that transfer can be easily made there. All right, moving on. Fourth, notice the promise fulfilled. The person who asks God for wisdom in facing trials and temptations is assured of an answer. How do we know that? It will be given to him. That is a statement of promise. That's a statement of future promise. It will be given to him. So that's a that, that is a statement of a promise that we will be fulfilled. What do we learn from that? No wisdom that is needed in facing a trial or temptation is ever withheld from a believer. Once again, it goes back to the picture of a good father. If us earthly fathers know how to give our children good gifts, how much more does the heavenly father know how to give his children the good gifts? And now, Anne, we can get to one more answer to our question. Where do we look for answers to our trials and temptations? We look for them by asking in prayer. We look for them in the Bible. We look for them from the counsel of others. But we can add one more very important word, one to that, and that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that God gives us to answer, to give us the answers, give us the wisdom to handle these trials and temptations. Uh, Now, a question for you there. Does that mean that we do nothing but sit back and wait for the answer to be poured into our heads? We're facing a trial. We're facing a temptation. We ask God for wisdom. He has promised he's going to answer. Does that mean we do nothing but sit back and just wait for the answer to be poured in our heads? What? Yes? How is that so? Oh, you said no? (laughs) Oh, that's excellent. Excellent work keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's that's excellent. It's not a passive, right? It, to, be, to be very technical about it, it's not a passive. It is a active uh, thing that's going on here. Now, look at verse 6. But let him ask in faith. This is talking about the person who lacks wisdom again. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Now, Gas prices are high right now. I know they've come down a little bit, but gas prices are high right now. If you're old as me, I remember gas being I think fifty-three cents a gallon. Okay, and, and, and so some of you may some of you may be old enough to remember gas that cheap. Also, fifty-three cents a gallon. So three dollar a gallon gas. That's expensive, right? Now, let me ask you this. Let's say you go to the go to the gas station. You have a twenty dollar bill in your pocket. and Your gas tank is empty. So you're saying, I'm going to put twenty dollars of gas in it, but I want a full tank. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go home. I'm going to put the garden hose in the tank and I'm going to top it off with water. And what, what, what's the gas gauge going to show? It's going to, you're going to turn you'll turn it on to, to not start but to run. And that gas gauge is going to go all the way up to full. You got a full tank, right? How's it going to work for you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, how, how, the car may start; it may not. If it does start, it won't run. It'll sputter, and it won't run long, right? I don't know, has anybody ever tried this before? Good. <laughs> Good you, 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 but, but you get the point of the illustration. I want to propose to you that the same principle applies spiritually. If we expect God's wisdom in facing trials and temptations, then we must look to God's wisdom and God's wisdom alone and take our eyes completely off of worldly wisdom. There's a phrase that I hate. That phrase that I hate is, well, I guess all I can do now is pray. You know what that phrase just said? Is is I've tried every way in the world or every worldly way, and it's not working. So now I guess I want to resort to prayer. I propose to you that that's just like filling your tank up with one-fourth gas and three-quarters water. You filled up the world's wisdom in three quarters of your tank. Figured out the car's not running, and then what do you do? Well, I'm going to add a little bit of, of spiritual wisdom in this as well. I propose to you that when we look at the word, when we look at words like double-minded or unwavering, what that indicates is, and Glenn and I talked about this. So he, he may remind us of the word singleness of mind. So often, when we face trials and temptations, we do things the world's way until we figure out it doesn't work, and then we turn to God's way. That is wavering. We are called as Christians to begin the facing of trials and temptations God's way. Not end, but begin. Now, verse 6, we see characteristics that must abide with the Christian who would seek God's wisdom in facing trials and temptations. Look at some of these characteristics. The first one is that person must ask how. In, In faith. Very good. That means what what does it mean to ask in faith right god again that that's a that's a very accurate quote. God is a rewarder of those that that seek him. Do we have other examples in the book of James of asking things in prayer that's not asking in faith? Anybody have James chapter four clicking your mind? What does James chapter four say people pray for wrongly Pleasure. spend it on your pleasures or upon your lust see there's often times when we pray when we think we're praying. When we think we 're praying in faith, but we 're actually praying just to feed our own lust, or it could be that we 're praying, and there 's something in our lives that is insincere, that is making us a hypocrite. What does the apostle Peter say about uh, living with your wives in all understanding? Have you ever know? yeah, have you ever figured that out? What in the world does that have to do with each other? Living with your wives in an understanding manner, that your prayers not be hindered? What does those have to do with each other? I think it's one practical application of a wider truth that tells us that there are things in our lives that hinder our prayers. Our relationship to other Christians hinders our prayers. Uh, now, I think we will move on to the second characteristic. We're told that that person must ask in faith, but we're also told one other thing about this person, and that is they must not do what? Must not doubt. Some of your other versions use the word Waver, waver, or doubt. I want you to see that wavering is set in opposition to something here. It is set in opposition to asking in faith. So if you want an answer to what it means to ask in faith, just look at what the opposite is. The opposite of asking in faith is wavering or doubting. Uh, I see that this can have two meanings. First, it could mean that we must not doubt that God will provide an answer. In fact, we've already been promised an answer, right? God will answer. Is anybody like me, is anybody guilty of praying about something, praying about God's wisdom and saying, but that's one God's probably not going to answer. You know, that's uh, God. God couldn't care about that. God's got more important things to do. That is doubting. That is wavering. To doubt that God will provide an answer. Second, and I propose this is more likely, We often doubt that God's answer is going to be the correct answer. We often doubt that God's answer is going to be the correct answer. It is interesting that the same word that is translated doubt or wavering here can also be translated contending, disputing, or debating. I see here the person that contends with God over a direct answer to the result of asking for wisdom. I'm guilty of doing it. Pray for something, get an answer, and say That's not the right answer, God. Uh, Look what Job says in Job chapter 9, verses 2 through 4. I know it is so of a truth, but how should a man be just with God? If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and hath prospered? What did Job just say? Job just said that there is no man that has a right to contend or dispute with God no matter how hard the answer is. Now, look at verse 6 one more time. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Now, I'm going to ask you to help me out here, because I'm interested, I'm fascinated by the sheer number of references that we find in the Bible about a person who doubts and wavers when they're faced with a trial or temptation. Some of them are Christians. Some of them are non-Christians. I'm fascinated with all that we could learn by studying through these passages. Now, what are some of those things? What are some of the things that we learn? Where do we Where do we look in the Bible and find passages about people that doubt or people that have wavering uh, opinions? Anybody know any? I got nine of them here, just real quickly. But I I want I want to I see what you what y'all are thinking of. Doubting Thomas, that's one of them. Let's see. Uh, what John the Baptist? There's another one. I've got that one in here. Got doubting Thomas. I got John the Baptist. Church. I don't have that one, but that, that's a, that's another good one. They'll, they pray for Peter's release, and Peter walks up to the door, and they say, "Well, I think you've seen his ghost." Yeah, that's a good one. I didn't get that one. That's a good one. Peter himself in uh, in, in what context? Oh yeah, betraying Christ. Yep. Gideon. mhm. Moses. Job. Job. Uh, Job did it. Job wavered. Had doubts? Eve? Yeah. You see how many times this occurs in the Bible? about, And it's not limited just on Christians. It is is Christians also who have this problem with wavering and doubting in the face of what God commands. Jonah. Jonah's a great one. Now, let me just take you through a few of these. And you you can keep up with me here if you want to. I'm actually going to go in order in the Bible and just point out a few of these things to you. I'm going to start all the way back in uh, 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 18 verses 20 to 21. If you're good with Bible drill, you can keep up with me here. If not, uh, listen along. 1 Kings 18 20 to 21. I'll ring a bell. Elijah, Mount Carmel, and so here I'm just extracting a couple of verses. So Ahab, that's the king, sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long will you halt between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if fail, then follow him. And the people decided on the spot. What did they do? They answered him not a word. What were they doing? Why didn't they answer? They wavered. You know what we call it sometimes? We call it hedging our bets. You know, I don't really know how this is going to turn out. I better not say anything so I'm on the winning side when this is all over and done with. Uh, They knew that they were guilty before God. But they didn't want to risk being at odds with the king either. And so what do they do? They do nothing. They don't answer. Next, Matthew six twenty four: No man can serve two masters, for he, he will either hate the one or love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. What's the implication there? If there are people out there that try to do what? Serve God, two masters, serve God and mammon. Uh, divided loyalties are impossible. There are people who think they can love the world six days a week, and then they can love the Lord on Sunday. That is impossible. Uh, You can only serve one master. Uh, Here's one Luke mentioned, Matthew 11, verses 2 through 6. Now when John, and this is John the Baptist, had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two two of his disciples and said unto him, that's Jesus, him, art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and shew John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. And the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. What's Jesus doing there? I propose he is warning. He is sending a warning back to John the Baptist that to not be offended in Jesus Christ. How was how was John tending that way by doubting and wavering? Matthew fourteen twenty eight to thirty one, very familiar story. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be Thou, bid me to come unto Thee on the water. Now you know the story, right? And He said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? See, it's not limited just to the world. We're guilty also. A vivid picture of what, when, of what happens when our faith wavers because of, go back to the very beginning, because of fear. Matthew 21, verses 23 to 27. And when he was coming to the temple, that's talking about Jesus, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority dost thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I in likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Whence was it, from heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say unto us, Why did ye not then believe him? But if we shall say of men, We fear the people, for all hold John as a prophet. And they answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. That's a lie. It should say, We will not tell. And he said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. The point we want to see there is when we waver. It's a sign of cowardice. Usually it's because of the fear of man. John 20, 24-29. We We've mentioned this one. But Thomas, called one of, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were with him, and Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then said he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed you know we call thomas doubting thomas right that's the that's the name we have given him since we were all very young children is that is that the only thing we know about thomas no it's not the only thing we know about thomas but i want you to i want to show you that, that instance of wavering faith is what has stuck in everybody's mind it's a warning for us not to be that way uh one thing that I do want to point out there is that last phrase. Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed, blessed are they that have not seen yet have believed. Jesus expects our steadfast faith to be based upon his word and not based upon our experience. It was easy for Thomas once he was able to see the wounds. Although we never told that he actually put his fingers there. He saw them and he believed. But what did, what did Jesus say? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. Romans fourteen twenty three, And we're getting kind of near the end here. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. This is the conclusion to a chapter-long dissertation by Paul on eating food that is sacrificed to idols. The message here is the sin of doing things that we're not certain about doing. Uh, we are often faced with situations that we're not sure if something is biblically right or not. But we do it anyway. That is sin. And sometimes we are presented with something that's biblically right to do, but we lack the faith to do it. That is sin as well. Uh, Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 14. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers... For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Keep all that in mind, now notice the contrast. That we be henceforth no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Do you see what's set in contrast here? There's a contrast between the Christian person who is complete and mature and the person who wavers in doubt. In fact, the language here is very similar to the language of James. Wavering, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. The person who doubts and wavers in faith is likened here to a child. That childish faith is susceptible to being led astray by false teachers False teaching, deceitful schemes, deceitful people. This is the person that goes chasing after every new fad, every new popular teaching, uh, every popular figure that comes along. keywords without discernment. Now, finally, in, the, in this list of nine, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 18. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. We get all the way to the closing book of the Bible, and we see the same problem of wavering people that are supposedly within the church of Christ. This time, how are they described? They're described as neither hot nor cold. Now, there's some people that say that that means, well, they're either hot for Jesus Christ or they're cold to Jesus Christ. But that's not the word picture that's given here. Hot and cold were both good things. It's the lukewarm that is spewed out of the mouth. The word picture is of hot and cold being good things. He said, I were that you were hot or cold. Think about it for a second. Jesus doesn't want anybody cold in terms of being cold to him. Jesus is giving us a word picture that hot water is good. That cold water is good, but it's the lukewarm that gets spewed out of his mouth. Uh, these Laodiceans look like they had their act together, but they had nothing of the righteousness and holiness that comes from Jesus Christ. Now, look at verse, uh, go back to James, and we'll bring this to a close here with verse 7 and verse 8. Verse 7 says this, For let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. We see here the injunction against the one who doubts, when he's asking God for wisdom in facing trials and temptations. What does that say? Is the person that doubts, the person who wavers, should expect what? Should expect nothing. Now, primarily, that is a reference to the unbeliever. But it can also be applied in our situation to the believer. Because we often, as believers, doubt and waver. And we should expect no answer in that situation. The unbeliever should never expect any answer for anything. But when we doubt and we waver, we should also expect to not receive anything. Uh, Now look at verse 8. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. The first thing that I see there is pervasiveness of wavering faith. Now, the word double-minded here is only found here in the New Testament. You can't go look at other places uh, to figure out what is meant by the term double-minded. Because it doesn't appear anywhere else, uh, it's a term that James uses to describe the person whose faith wavers between two opinions. Why didn't I spend all the time talking about wavering and doubting? Because I think that is what th- those are two other words that are used to describe what it means to be a double-minded man. But notice what it says about what James says about the person whose faith wavers between godly and worldly wisdom when facing trials and temptations. James says. What about that person? What about their unstableness? It's entire. It says in all his ways. uh now, is that true? I know it's true. It's in the Bible, but can you show me examples when you have a person who doubts and wavers when seeking God's wisdom and facing trials and temptations? Does it show in other areas of their life as well? All right, I got some nods. How <coughs> yeah. Yeah, they deny the. Uh, I think the verse there is you know professing professing power, uh, God, but denying the power thereof. Yeah, that's a different one. Yeah, that's a, okay. And I'm not doing a very good job quoting it either. But yeah, they have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. That's in Second Timothy. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, all right. Are there other ways? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that one brings to my mind one Solomon. You know, he is the he is the picture perfect person of how how to ask God for wisdom. In fact, God says, "Ask me for anything you want." And what did he ask for? He asked for wisdom. But then, what do we see in his life? Uh, we see uh, we see him stray. We see him marrying foreign women and all that, and multiplying chariots and horses unto himself, and all those things that God specifically commanded against. And it's really Solomon that causes. The division of the kingdom His, when he, you know his, his sons come along and they refuse to listen to the count. His son refuses to listen to the council of the elders and tears the kingdom apart. Yeah. Uh, now, James says there that the a person will be unstable in all their ways or in all that they do. In other words, you can tell much about a person's character by watching the way that they handle trials and temptations. The word unstable here is a very interesting word. It's used over in James 3.8. If you look over a page in your Bible, you'll see it there. But the tongue can no man tame. It is, there it is, an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Same word. It's also used by Paul over in 1 Corinthians 14.33. For God is not the author of confusion. Same word. But of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, what are the points that we want to take away? I have six points here, and they'll go fast, of what we ought to take away from this. The first thing that I want you to take away from this is that God is the only source for true wisdom. The only source. Second, we learned that we must ask for wisdom. The third thing we learned is that God gives wisdom generously or liberally and without reproach, without reprimanding, without, without chiding, without upbraiding. The fourth thing we learn is that when we ask for wisdom, we must ask in faith without doubting, without wavering, and that doubting will prevent us from receiving anything from God. Fifth, we learn that doubting and wavering faith will make our entire lives unstable. And then sixth, we learn that we should not ask for deliverance from trials because we are asking for a way out of a chance to mature. That carries over from this morning, trying to tie these verses all together. Yeah. We should not ask for deliverance from trials, and not what I mean by deliverance is asking for trials to be taken away completely because we are asking for a way out of a chance to mature. In other words, if every time a trial comes into our life, we say, God, take it away, and he does it. Next Tuesday, a trial comes in. You say, God, take it away. He does it. Thursday afternoon, you have a trial come into your life. You say, God, take it away. He does it. it happens next Sunday, next th- you know, next Wednesday afternoon. Are you ever going to mature? So... We can we can put a we can put a truism equivalent to this. It's not asking. We should not ask for deliverance from trials. We should ask for deliverance through trials. Just a matter of semantics there. <coughs> mm-hmm. Right. 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 yeah Yeah. Right. And so, so perhaps we we could phrase that better that we should not we should not ask for the absence of trials and temptations. If, if, I coined a phrase sometime in the past. It may not be original to me, but I claimed it was the phrase of marshmallow Christian. What are we raising in America? We're raising a, a generation of marshmallow Christians, Christians that never have known trials, that have never known persecution, and that's what they're made of. That's you know, truthfully, that's what I'm made of marshmallow because I've never been tried I've never been tested I don't know what I don't know what will happen to me (laughs) 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 all right well that is the material that I have prepared for you and uh, I by no means want to cut off the discussion so uh, feel free to uh, if anybody has an extra word or a question but thank you for pointing that out John That, that that needs some better wording on it there And I think you and I, Glenn, were talking about uh, much of Hebrews chapter 11 was the idea of people that did not have wavering faith. Well, I I think the whole matter of Ishmael is an example of of wavering and doubting faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah. hmm Yeah. Or as the man with a paralytic son would say, I believe helped out my unbelief.